Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for conversations with the finalists of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is a three-time finalist for the Bill Duthie Booksellers Choice Award, and I'm going to let her introduce herself. I'm Eve Lazarus. I'm a former reporter, I'm an author, and a true crime podcaster. Eve's book, Vancouver Exposed, Searching for the City's Hidden History, is a finalist for the 2021 Bill Duthie Booksellers Choice Award. And Eve starts this episode with a reading from the book. I'm going to um, read from one of the stories from Vancouver Exposed, and I'm going to, I thought I'd pick for for this podcast, the World Belly Flop and Cannonball Diving Championship. And this was something I stumbled over. I saw years ago, and I can't remember where I first saw it, but I saw this great photo. And it was a coach house swimming pool in North Vancouver. There was a huge crowd of people over there and hovering over the swimming pool with this huge hot air balloon. And um, when you look down, there was this man, very, very large man, leaping in mid-leap, basically, out of this hot air balloon. And I just stared and stared and stared at this photo and thinking, oh, my God, what if the wind had blown the wrong way? You know, a stiff gust of wind and he'd gone splat on the, the concrete in front of all these people. But anyway, he didn't, apparently, and he came in second. So I was absolutely fascinated by this, and I needed to find out more information, like why Vancouver was holding up a world belly flop competition anyway. And uh, so I did a bit of research and I came up with a story. So I'm going to read it. It's hard to fathom how anyone could think that a belly flop competition was a good idea. But Tom Butler did back in the 1970s, as it happens, and he was right. Former Vancouver Sun reporter turned PR guy, Butler was a master of the photo op. He once borrowed a beaver from the Stanley Park Zoo for a cross-US tour to promote local tourism. According to a Globe and Mail story, the beaver scrambled up the steps of San Francisco City Hall to be hugged by the mayor and promptly committed an indignity of relieving itself. That was a direct quote, by the way, not me. Uh, The front page caption the next day's paper was, damn that beaver. Butler talked astronaut Neil Armstrong into coming to Vancouver and opening a revolving restaurant above the Sears Tower, now Harbour Centre. The slogan for the event was the restaurant that soars halfway to the moon in the night sky over Vancouver was opened by a man who went all the way. But back to belly flops. Butler invented the World Belly Flop and Cannonball Diving Championship in 1975 to publicise the Bayshore Hotel's new pool. That first year, top billing went to seven foot four, that's 2.2 metres, tall professional wrestler Andre the Giant. Andre the Giant was later immortalised for his performance as Fezzik in The Princess Bride. In 1976, the American Hotel and Motel Association recognised the belly flop competition as North America's best publicity stunt for that year. After that, the competition moved to the Coach House Inn in North Vancouver and during more than 3,000 spectators. Entrants from Fiji and Japan, as well as US President Jimmy Carter's brother, Billy, were judges. 
annual coverage from NBC TV reached 20 million people. For a chance to win the coveted green bathrobe, a trophy and $1,000 in cash, you had to weigh at least 250 pounds to enter. Contestants had to spring off a three foot diving board and execute two cannonballs and three spread eagle belly flops. Judges picked a winner based on height of splash, estimated weight of displaced water, artistry and personality. Trevor Rowe sent me a note when he saw the photo on my blog, and it turned out that it was his dad, Kamikaze Bill, who was leaping from a hot air balloon into the coach house pool. Now, Trevor was just four years old. His dad was a logger from Bellingham, and he won second place in the 1979 competition. Trevor says he remembers his dad stuffing weights inside his shirt so that he could meet the minimum weight required to enter. The Miss 1979 belly flop was won by Christy Russell, a 26-year-old, 450-pound stripper who went by the stage name Big Fanny Annie. And this is a quote uh, from Tom Butler, that, who passed away in 2012, and this was in the Globe and Mail. And he said, it's something that is universally understood. I mean, there's no subtlety to it, but what else can a 300-pound truck driver do and get to have NBC declare that he's champion of the United States of America. Thanks, Eve. Well, you mentioned in uh, your reading the blog, and of course, I as I was reading the book, I read the introduction, and it seems like this book started with the blog. So could you start by talking a little bit about how your blog, Every Place Has a Story, started? Yeah, happy to. It started in 2010 and uh, it came about because I'd written a book called At Home With History. Uh, it's got this incredibly long subtitle I can never remember, but it's, it's something like the the um, untold secrets of Vancouver's heritage houses in Greater Vancouver, blah, blah, blah. Uh, <laughs> and despite all that, it actually did okay, this book, but uh, it was my first book. And it, it was all about, I thought I was actually writing the story of the houses. The, the idea was a, a house has um, a social history or a genealogy like a, a person has. And I was telling the stories I thought at that point was history through the house. And what I found was we had all these bootleggers and brothels and um, corrupt cops and fantastic women in history and, that I'd never heard of. And uh, I got really interested in, in all of this and um, anyway the book came out and then people would write and tell me their stories so it was like oh you know grandma was a madam I'm making this up of course but you know grandma was a madam and uncle jack was a bootlegger and you know I was married to a corrupt cop blah 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 and um, anyway they, they'd send me photos of uncle jack's bootlegging card from 1954 or a, a picture of the family in the 1800s standing outside their house which was you know of course now a condo development or something and I thought oh my god this is so incredible incredible but I have nowhere to put all this you know I wish I'd had in the book but I don't so I'd started this blog really as a way to just add to these stories and as a repository really for other people's history and um, it just seemed to mushroom and I got really obsessed about it and I'm still obsessed about it and I write every week and and um, people would just add to these stories I guess, oh, about a, two years ago, I must have talked to Brian Lamb and Arsenal Pulp. And I said, you know, my blog is coming up to its 10th anniversary. And I'm thinking of just self-publishing, you know, a little book um, on my stories. 
And he said, you know, I think we'd be interested in that. And uh, thank God, because it's such a beautiful book and they let me go to town with full colour and, you know, all these fantastic photos and of other people. And But the, the best part for me was including all these people's histories. So it became just really like an organic history, I guess, from the bottom up, of people telling their own stories and, and just adding to this. And, and now, you know, now I'm doing the blog, it's continued on. People write to me. I have people that, it was a 96-year-old architect who worked for um, Makata Nan. Uh, Bob Stewart, I think his name was, but he wrote to me in an email and had gone through the book and just listed page number story and added his story to it. <laughs> and he'd send me, you know, like he was um, oh, a building of the aquarium, for example, in the 50s. And he'd add me a person. I was like, oh, my God, this is so great. You know, I'm so excited that these stories are connecting again with people. And it's become kind of this circular thing. And I'm thinking, well, gee, maybe in five, 10 years, I can do this again, you know, new stories with, you know, more people's history and that doesn't typically get covered in, in mainstream, you know, traditional history books. I mean, how did you, how did you decide you had 10 years of the blog and one, this one book to try and get all that, how did you decide what made it into the book? And did you in stuff, include stuff in the book that wasn't included in the blog and add to it? Oh, God, yes. Um, when I pitched the book to Arsenal, the, the first thing they said to me is, God, why would anyone buy this if it's already for free on your blog? And I said, well, you know, no one actually sits there and reads my blog from story to story. You know, they'll trip over a story and they might read a couple. But, you know, it's not that. But, you know, point taken. And I, I looked through all my favourite stories and the ones I thought would really connect. And, and the, the book's divided into six sections of geographical areas, very loosely defined, so I could basically do anything I wanted in there. But, yeah, I took down a lot of the posts before the book came out, and I took six months off, and all I did was write for the book. And you're seeing those posts coming up now every week. It's great because I've got all this material. <laughs> I can take a bit of a holiday and just, uh, you know, post them up on my blog, which is what I've been doing. I did the Devonshire, for example, last week. So yeah, lots of new stuff that people wouldn't have seen in the blog. Yeah. It it feels like this book is kind of um a culmination of the different themes of your book and I guess of your work. And I guess that or your blog is like that too. We've got the the heritage houses and the history and the murder. And I'm wondering how all those different interests developed for you. Was it did it start with houses and then of course people get murdered in houses and so you ended up researching that or how did those interests come up for you? That's exactly how it started, actually. Um, when I was doing it at home with history, I, I did. I stumbled across a few house murders. So I've got a chapter of um, house murders that happened in the house. And just very lightly, I didn't go into a deep dive on them at, at all. But I did that and I did a chapter on because you can't really have murders without ghosts because they haunt houses. So there was a chapter on that in, in At Home With History. And the next book was Sensational Victoria. And literally, I wasn't doing that at all. I had no intention of that. It was, you know, much more sort of history related. And I would go to people's houses, maybe to look at their heritage garden. You know, I'd knock on the door and say, hi, I'm Eve. We talked on the phone. I'm here to look at you. And they'd say, oh, are you here to talk about our ghost? <laughs> and I'd say, ghost? Yes, I am. Yes, I am here. And um, so, because who knew? But Victoria is the, the capital of hauntings in, I think, Canada. 
And um, people love their ghosts. They embrace their ghosts. You know, not like Vancouver where we go, oh, my God, no ghosts here, no ghosts here, because we're so scared it will bring our real estate down. (laughs) But not Victoria. They love their ghosts. So it became this ghost. And, you know, it was the opposite to at home. When I was doing the ghosts, I found out about all the murders. So there's quite a grisly chapter on murders in Victoria in that book. So the third book became sensational Vancouver and I, I kind of that was much more sort of the bootleggers and the, the underbelly of, of Vancouver and that was a book I realized that hey I don't think I'm actually doing history I think I'm doing true crime that's informed by history and um, how fun is this you know I was really enjoying myself by this stage I thought this is great this is the history I can really get into and yeah do a deep dive and uh, anyway so I did the same thing that uh, different murders in in houses but this time I, I sort of looked into it a bit more and um, I started doing a few of the, the true crime that are in the Vancouver Police Museum and Archives. And one of them was the Paul's murder and it was a triple murder. And around that I found a couple that really felt like there was a serial killer in the city. And I, I'd written about this, this woman called Evelyn Roche who was murdered three months before the Paul's. And she was just walking home from the bus and there was like, you know, about two or three newspaper clippings on her. And it talked about her, that she just married again. She was a widow, just married again, had moved into this house and had two teenagers. And again, I didn't do a huge dive because I was still kind of in the history mindset, but it really bothered me. I really wanted to know what happened to these teenagers. So after the book came out, I started really getting into it. And I, I finally found her son and daughter. They were both their daughters passed away unfortunately now but um, then they were still alive and I was able to talk to them and and find out their story and I really got her story and I realized that I really wanted to tell the story of these victims I don't want to just tell the story of the murder that happened in the house which is what I'd been doing I really want to tell the murder of, of these people and just you know that they were more than the murder and they're in the wrong place at the wrong time and you know, 60 years had gone by and they were still forgotten, 50, 60 years, except by, you know, immediate family. And I wanted to bring that out. So uh, Cold Case Vancouver, you'll see a, um, which was the next book, that the crime scene on the cover is actually Evelyn Roche's crime scene. And it happened like literally a block and a half from her house. But that sort of really got me in, into that. And um, so th- that became Cold Case Vancouver. And you know, it started off, it, there's, I think, 19 different stories in it, and it's Lower Mainland, although it's called Cold Case Vancouver because that sounds much better than murders in the Lower Mainland and blah, blah, blah. Um, it is Lower Mainland-based. Each one goes on to another book. That's, that's quite true. And, in fact, with, with Cold Case Vancouver, after I'd finished it, and had gone off to my editor, and uh, I got a call from Diane Eady, and she's the archivist at North Vancouver Museum and Archives, just down the hill from me. And she said, "You know, we've just uh, been given this album, like a photo album, from the, the pictures range from about 1900 to about the early 1940s, and it's got a name, and it says Miss J Conroy. And I've done some research, and I found that Jenny Conroy was murdered in 1944." And it's unsolved. Uh, are you interested? And I said, oh, my God, yes, of course I'm interested. And I jumped into my car and went straight down there. And, and Diane had got this incredible album with all these family pictures of these people in North Vancouver in the 40s. I said, oh, God, I wish, you know, I could get this in the book. 
Anyway, I took a picture of Diane holding the, the album up and wrote a little bit about her research basically on my blog. And <laughs> literally the next day, it's a Jenny Conroy who died in 1944, 24 years old. Her niece wrote to me. She reads my blog out of the, you know, a handful of people in the world that read my blog. And one of them happened to be <laughs> Debbie, Jenny's niece. And, and she wrote and she said, well, Jenny actually had a baby uh, three months before she was murdered. And we've recently been in touch with her. She's now 70, I think, at that point. And she lives in New Zealand. Would you like to talk to her? I said, oh, yes, I would. And um, it was just an incredible, incredible story. And when I started researching Jenny's case, she was an unmarried mother in the war. She was also a war worker. She was like a Rosie the Riveter. Uh, just a really, really interesting woman. And when she, after she was murdered and the police came and investigated and leaked to the media that she was an unmarried mother, they basically just, you know, oh, it, was, it was just awful. They brutalised this woman, you know, after death. Her family found out she had a baby through the media and they basically, you know, thought she was the architect of Roe murder. Oh, she must have been out drinking and got beaten to death. Well, too bad, move on. And I was just so horrified, so horrified that that had happened and her murder had just been left, just forgotten. And uh, so I called my editor and I said, look, I really need to get this story in a book. And most of the, the chapters have taken me months and months to research and track down family members and, and just really get into them. And she said, oh, you've got a week. So we ended up between Debbie and Mary, Jenny's daughter, who'd done a lot of work on a biological mother. Uh, and a lot of it was before the Privacy Act had kicked in for adoption. So she had a huge amount of information. So we actually collaborated basically and, and wrote the chapter. And it was an amazing, I, I think it was the strongest chapter in the book. And it's also my first podcast episode. And it was just, it was so rewarding for me because after the book came out and then the podcast, um, Jenny's grandchild, like who's now grown up male, Mary's son, wrote to me to thank me for telling the story, telling the proper story of the mother of, and their grandmother. So, so that was really incredible. And, but while I was doing the research on Jenny's story, I came across this article and it talked about how um, at the crime scene, they'd got Walter Mulligan, who ended up being a very bad cop, but at that point he was a detective. And this Inspector Vance from the Vancouver Police Department to come to the crime scene. And Inspector Vance turned out to be a forensic scientist. And I thought, oh my God, that's so interesting. We had a forensic scientist in the 40s who we were doing forensics, wow. So I went to the police museum because he worked out of there. He actually turned out he founded it in 1932 to, to find out more about him. And uh, I just got absolutely fascinated with this guy and found out where his grandchildren were. His daughter actually was still alive. She was 98 when I started, but she had dementia. So that was actually really unfortunate. And, um, you know, I was able to talk to her a bit, but it, it, it wasn't uh, a lot of information. But her daughter uh, knew her grandfather and remembered in the 60s helping him to pack up all these boxes. He retired actually back in 1949. And uh, she said, oh, too bad. They've probably been thrown out you know, decades ago, but they had all these crime scene photos and books and all. I thought, oh, my God, can you imagine getting your hands on that? So by this time, I'd collected all these emails from various grandchildren all over North America. And I thought, oh, large, last ditch effort. So I wrote to all of them. I said, oh, could everyone just look at their attics and basements and, and just see if anyone saved any of this information from Inspector Vance? 
<laughs> anyway, a couple of weeks later, I get this email and then these seven boxes had turned up in one of the grandchilds, who's now, of course, you know, older, um, and Gabriella Island and seven boxes. And we got them back to Vancouver and they hadn't been opened in decades, right? And the first thing, we opened this box and the envelope on top says, Jenny Conroy murdered 1944. <laughs> and I was like, holy, this is really, really kind of creepy. And I open it up and literally there's the first thing is this tiny little envelope and I tip it out and I've got Jenny's hair and gravel samples from the crime scene just tipping out on my desk. There's autopsy photos and, oh, God, it was so much information. Um, it was just incredible. And at that point, I thought, oh, how could I not write a book? You know, his Vance and I both, you know, so obsessed with this 1944 murder. And it was one of the few murders that he'd worked on that was never solved. And it obviously bothered him so much that he took everything home with him to work on it after he was retired. And uh, so, yeah, so that's how that one came about. And uh, we ended up, we had the uh, book launch back at the Vancouver Police Museum because where else, you know, could you possibly think of having it? And they ended up, had a lot of his forensic equipment and it was these old test tubes and ballistic guns. And he used to make up his own stuff because none of it was available back then. And such an interesting man. They called him the Sherlock Holmes of Canada because he, you know, just solved so many cases with his forensic skills and in 1934, there were seven attempts against his life from people trying to kill him so he couldn't go to court and testify. And he'd just been left, like forgotten by history, just completely passed over. Because imagine if he was in the States, you know, we'd have a, a monument or something for him. But be a TV Canada... show, probably. <laughs> oh, God, can you imagine? Like, here's this guy. He was so incredible. He was in the paper all the time. He worked from 1907 to 1949. You know, he became my book, Blood, Sweat and Fear. And the police museum were fantastic. You know, they put together a tour of um, one of the areas not accessible to the public for the book launch. And we'd set up a bar in the autopsy suite uh, right next to the morgue. Anyway, so I'm having a glass of wine. You know, book launches are a bit like weddings. You don't really get to chat to anyone for long. But I was having a glass of wine and this woman came up to me. So I'm... My back's to the autopsy suite where the bodies used to come and I'm sort of facing the true crime exhibit where there's a true crime about Esther Castellani who was, just briefly, if you don't know the story, so there's Rini Castellani was a sort of minor radio personality with CKNW in the 60s and he fell in love with Lolly, the 25-year-old receptionist. So he decided that he was going to murder his 40-year-old wife, Esther, so he could marry Lolly. So he put arsenic in Esther's milkshakes over a number of years and uh, did, in fact, murder her. And uh, they had an 11-year-old daughter, who's sort of Janine, who became the collateral damage in all of this. Anyway, he was found out, he was arrested, he was... Um, uh, convicted of capital murder and, and put in jail. But, and anyway, so as I'm having my glass of wine in between Esther's true crime exhibit and the autopsy suite where her body was actually brought when it was exhumed, uh, this woman says, oh, hi, I'm Janine Castellani. And, you know, that's my mother. <laughs> I was like, whoa. Okay. So we agreed to meet the next week. 
and I met with Janine and her daughter and she's an amazing, amazing woman. She's become a really, really close friend. And I just wanted to tell her story. She wanted a story out. It's an amazing story. I mean, the murder itself is incredible, but Janine's perspective, her point of view was all through the story. And I really wanted to give Esther back her voice because Rini was such an over-the-top, kind of charismatic personality that he kind of overrode everything and while that's all in the book my point of writing it was to really show who Esther was and the damage that this horrific murder did on the family and uh, yeah so I'm quite that was murder by milkshake that's how that one came about and of course um Rennie makes an appearance in Vancouver exposed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and actually that became part of the blog because he, one of his things at CKW, he did a lot of promotions. And uh, they, back in, I think it was 1963, they were mad on ratings. And whoever the opposition radio station was had come up with this idea about um, handing out money for ratings or, and tied to some TV show. And CKW thought, oh, we'll have to, you know, come up with something like better and so they dreamed up this Maharaja of Alibaba. And the idea was to come over to BC and, and buy BC. And people just really bought into this thing and believed it and came up with signs saying, keep BC British, because of course we were, it was the 1960s and we we're very British and nothing could be too racist, I guess, if it was for ratings. <laughs> So it was this it's bizarre promotion that was incredibly successful. And so I'd written about that in Murder by Milkshake. And I'd written just a little blog about it after the book came out. And this guy calls me, what's his name? His name escapes me right now. But um, had wrote to me and he said, I'm the guy in the picture with Rini. I was like 22 years old. It was my job to uh, be the driver. And I drove him round to all these places and we'd go to BC football games and we'd hand out cash and he'd be this whole mystical Alibaba. So he told me the story behind it. It was great. Apparently Dr. Ballard, Dr. Ballard dog food. Anyway, apparently big deal. And he owned part of the station. He lent them a limo. And they had uh, two women that used to do food demonstrations, you know, in the supermarkets and stuff. They're on uh, contract with CKW. So they dressed them up as harem girls, <laughs> put them all in the limousine and had them drive all around town. So I just love that story so much. And I loved, you know, he'd sent me photos as well, which I'd put in the book. And it was just so nice to be able to add to the story and, and you know, just tell something else that hadn't been out before. Yeah. Something that I was thinking about, and you've touched on it so well in uh, just talking about all the uh, the different books, is you know giving a voice and sharing histories that aren't typically documented, and that was something that really came up for me as I was reading Vancouver Exposed was just kind of the story, the narrative that we've all been kind of given about Vancouver is is very different than the reality of Vancouver that exists, and and a lot of uh, probably what exists for you in finding histories is you know, in the archives is one certain story. And that's probably why you have to rely so much on on family to fill in the gaps. Mm. But what is it like for you to kind of shine a light on those on those spots that are typically, you know, in the shadows, or we've forgotten about entirely, you know, like I even think of Hogan's Alley, and how little we mm. I knew about Hogan's Alley until very recently. And that that's 
at this story for so many communities in Vancouver, the Indigenous history as well, of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a lot of it, you know, the story that I read about the world belly flop uh, came out of a photo. And a lot of the stories have come out of photos. You know, I'll be going through the archives or, you know, Vancouver Public Library and I'll come across something and just stare at it and think, wow, what was this? And um, one of those was, uh, it's actually the, the cover of the book and the first story. It was a Vancouver Archives photo from about 1924. And it showed Georgia Street and Granville. But instead of, you know, the Pacific Centre and all those ugly towers, there are these amazing buildings. There was a Burke's building on the corner, this gorgeous Edwardian structure. Uh, and closer to uh, me, <laughs> looking at the photo, was the Strand Theatre, which is now kind of the, the BC Tell, where the BC Tell building is. And across the road where we have the now Nordstrom's and the Black TD Tower was the second hotel Vancouver. And it was this incredibly stunning, stunning 16-storey building, gothic looking with all these, you know, amazing plastic casts and mooses. And it was just insane looking. And I thought, this is Vancouver? This is like Georgia and Granville? I, I, I just don't understand this at all. And I started sort of digging into the buildings and the Burke's building. And uh, what um, Jazz, the designer, um, did was she took this photo from the archives of the Burke's building. And it's from in the 20s. It's got trams going down it. And she tried to get a photo as close as she could with it now of that really ugly, ugly, London Drugs building, the Scotia Tower behind it. And she's kind of made a college and ripped it apart. And it was just so perfect for the book, you know, sort of peeling back the layers to see what's underneath. Because even before the Burke's building, there are other buildings there. And so to me, I became really fascinated with the evolution of the city and what we were doing and, and why, why we kept changing things. You know, these buildings didn't get to be very old and we'd rip them down and put up something else. And, and to me, that was just really criminal. And, you know, I don't want to be like this anti-change person. I'm not. But we just could have done so much better. Had we kept those buildings and built around them, you know, had we kept the Devonshire just, you know, further down and, and the Georgia Medical Building, and again, build around them. Oh my God, we would have had such an incredibly beautiful city. So interesting. And, you know, we could have repurposed those buildings and, and still had the density, but we didn't. We just ripped them down because that's quicker and easier. And it's just heartbreaking. And, you know, these buildings are so much more than bricks and mortar. They, they do hold our history. And you mentioned Hogan's Alley. I mean, we've taken that down and we've ripped out a huge amount of the black community. Um, the Indigenous history, you know, we just Stanley Park, all of that, it's just gone. It just, it's like it never existed. The Chinese history, you know, we've still got Chinatown, although that was just a real near miss. Um, we're very, very close to losing all of that in Strathcona in the 60s with a freeway. And, um, you know, without that, and even the stories of women, is, you know, contained. And if we don't have that building that we could go down and see and touch and experience, we tend to lose that history and they're just not covered. It's, we're getting better at it now, but traditionally they've just never been covered in traditional histories. So I think that building becomes a repository for all these different communities' histories and it's so important. And, you know, I think we, we really need to think about that before we just destroy everything as well. And, you know, we've seen 
a bit of change. Like it, it brings me some hope when I see um, the building, I think it was a Windsor Hotel on West Pender and it had been left just to run down into this horrible, horrible dump that was, you know, overrun by bikies and junkies and I think it was connected to William, yeah, Willie Picton. It was just an awful trash building. But they kept the facade and the Indigenous uh, communities taken it over and, and made it into this gorgeous boutique hotel, which is, it's so stunning. It's got an art gallery. Um, they've cleansed it all. It's got totem pole. It's, it's just amazing. And, you know, it's taking a bit back their history and a bit back the history of the area. So I'm so excited to see that. Um, the Vancouver Stock Exchange Tower on Howe Street. Again, they, they've gutted it, but they've kept the facade and they've kept the, the lobby where that was all the trading floor and where a lot of activity happened over the last century. And uh, they've embraced the history. They've called it the exchange and they brought in the murals and part of the trading floor and all those gorgeous old uh, you know, archival photos that they've blown up. And it's been really, really hugely successful to them. Uh, the Canada Post building. Thank God we didn't, you know, I think it was just too big and too strong to rip it down. Otherwise, I'm sure they would have. But we've kept it and that's been repurposed into, you know, something could be quite fantastic. But what I'm excited about, they've also kept all that gorgeous artwork and mosaics and, you know, the postman that was out in the front and, and all of that. So that's all going to be a strong part of the history of that building. That's only 50s, but, you know, it's one of these huge examples of mid-century modern architecture so that gives me a bit of hope that we might you know be waking up and you know looking at other solutions rather than just demolition yeah it seems like a, an important part of telling these kind of untold stories are finding finding people to talk to and finding characters just like really important vivid characters and you've mentioned uh, Jenny Conroy and you know even more characters came out in this book like obviously Joe Forte is is such an important Vancouver character and the gentleman whose name is escaping me who helped build the seawall that was just like such a, such a cool story <laughs> But what are some of the characters that really stand out for you from this book? And, and maybe if you could share why you kind of hold a fondness for them. Well, one of them, um, Maxine McGilvery, and she was a really interesting woman. She um, started up one hairdressing salon back in the 20s, I think, then increased it to two and then built a, a beauty school and it turns out she was also like she had a degree in pharmacy she was also a chemist so she was also making products and skincare and things like that and she ended up um, being so successful that she built the Maxine Beauty School Maxine Beauty School <laughs> on Bidwell and Davy. And um, it became a huge thing. It, 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 she had an auditorium in there that had 200 people. She had classes. She brought people up there. Like She was just this really amazing woman. Had you ever heard of her? No. No, no. me either. Um, but they finally, they've named Elaine after her. They've called it Maxine's. And rather than, you know, whatever, you know, sort of when I first saw that, I thought, oh, yeah, use a first name. But, yeah, you need to. Uh, but they've put chemist and entrepreneur and I thought that's so perfect you know I was fearful that they would put hairdresser or something like that there um, because she was so incredible and I thought great that you know the city has recognized her finally and the building is still there the facade is still there it's now JJ Beans but you know it was just so amazing and, and then she 
morphed that into a hotel in the 40s and it became a hotel for a number of years after that. So just this really interesting entrepreneur that got lost. But say one of my favourites is Jean Mollison. And uh, Jean Mollison and his sister Anne immigrated from Scotland in the late 1800s and they were in their 20s. And they were given, they, Anne was the older sister and, and she became the manager of the Banff Springs Hotel when it opened. Like, it just blows me away that back then, this young woman became the manager of Banff Springs Hotel, which is still there. And her sister became the assistant manager. And they did so well that they were given other hotels to open in the CPR train. And um, Jean went on to uh, open the, I think the biggest was the late, you know, the Chateau at Lake Louise, that's right. And she grew that into quite a large hotel of about 200 rooms. So then back in Vancouver in 1906, B.T. Rogers, who was like the sugar baron, right, had bought the Glencoe. And it was actually two houses on Barad and Georgia, Barad and Georgia, where the Royal Centre is now, across the road from Christchurch Cathedral. So they had two quite large mansions. They were former CPR houses. And he'd combined them and made a boutique hotel called the Glencoe Lodge. And it was quite an upmarket, had quite an upmarket clientele. At any rate, he wooed Jean Mollison, who was also always known as Miss Mollison, never Jean or anything else. She was Miss Mollison. And he wooed her and wooed her because he wanted her to come to Vancouver and manage. And in the end, he gave her, I think, some incentive where he'd supply all the furniture and she could do whatever. And and um, it was hers to do. And so she came out and she managed that hotel until 1932, until the Depression, and she was getting quite old by then. And they'd sold it, pulled it down, of course, and made it into a parking lot. And uh, Jean went on and managed a, a couple of other smaller places. Uh, but it just blows me away that we had this woman that this managed hotels back then, you know, and um, they actually named Mount Molson is named after Jean and Anne. I didn't know that. I thought that was quite great. So they did get some recognition after all. So, yeah, there are a couple, couple from history that um, I, I'm really, really impressed with. Yeah. I loved the story of the polar bear swim too. I, I didn't know, I didn't know that story. And my husband does uh, cold water swims and I said, you have to read this story. It's great. <laughs> and yeah. And that was another incredible woman, Ivy Grandstrom. Yeah. Wow. Wasn't that she picture was so great. Oh, and she was, yeah. she what, did her first polar bear swim, I think in 2016, if I have this right. And did seven, pretty sure I've got this, 76 consecutive swims, polar bear swims. Her last one when she was well into her 90s and she did that I think 2004 just three months you know she died three months later and she was legally blind since birth yeah. she was so inspirational and I started looking into that and she was an incredible athlete she went all around the world competing and again you know so inspirational she got the um, order of BC I think in the order of Canada just so deservedly and again hopefully we'll hear more about her but, you know, again, I'd never heard of her until I saw yeah. the polar bear swim. And, you know, that was fabulous. But she was so much more than that, you know. Thanks so much to Eve for being on Writing the Coast. And thanks to you for listening and subscribing to Writing the Coast. If you'd like to learn more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, be sure to visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. 
On our website, you'll find all the information about the shortlisted authors, as well as details about upcoming events. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Eva Holland, whose book, Nerve, Adventures in the Science of Fear, is a finalist for the 2021 Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.